This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hey all, we are back again with a one D&D UA panel discussion. I am here with our illustrious host, John, and our fellow DMs, Michael and Ian. I am Stephanie, John's co-host for Borrowing Brilliance episodes of Dragon Mind. And it is so nice to be back to playing and playtesting D&D rather than panicking over the disaster that was the OGL crisis. So this feels like a wonderful return to normal. Our first one D&D playtest all after all of the, the hullabaloo in January. So today's focus is on the fourth Unearthed Arcana playtest packet for 1D&D, which was focused on the Druid and Paladin, which rounded out the Priest class. Cleric, the third Priest class, was printed back in the, the third playtest packet. Uh, this most recent drop also included revised feats, more spells with a focus on Smite, and a, a few other interesting ones, um, and of course, uh, more rule glossary updating. So let's begin with some speculation about Wizards of the Coast methodology moving forwards as we get deeper into this playtest material. Uh, so John, what are what are your thoughts to start us off on the direction that they're going in? So before releasing this Unearthed Arcana as they usually do, um, Wizards of the Coast released a few different videos uh, with Todd Kenrick interviewing Jeremy Crawford. And the first one I thought was kind of interesting. It was just a state of the Unearthed Arcana because I think that even there were a lot of questions about what Unearthed Arcana was going to look like after the whole OGL debacle. And Jeremy Crawford, one of the first things he said was part of the feedback they received, which was just, it was kind of interesting, the timing, because last time we talked about Project Black Flag and how there wasn't like enough, he mentioned that to make sure there's enough to actually play test that the playtest packets are going to be meatier, but spaced apart farther so that us as playtesters have an opportunity to really test some different dimensions of the content of each of these packets. I know one thing that I would love to see moving forwards, and I think everybody should go put this on the surveys, is I think these playtest packets need to start being cumulative because it is getting somewhat unwieldy it would, it's getting to the point where it'd be really helpful if they could compile it all together I found myself juggling between all of the packets and it was very frustrating to to try to figure out I think it'd be nice to and this is expands the scope of probably what they're doing but if they carved out a website specific area instead of having to thumb through pdfs at all it'd be great to just be able to search for stuff and kind of browse the, the website itself. I agree. Um, I mean, I know they have like playtest one D&D on uh, D&D Beyond, but you still have to go through like three or four different uh, like actual windows to get to the PDF that you need at the time. And I know they tried to like cover their bases by saying, if it says this in the newest PDF, then you can ignore every other PDF on that topic. Um, and that makes sense, but it's just, I, I just feel like it's a, it's a slight shortcut that um, is just not holding up in terms of how people are going to be required to open up old documents. And I, I think it would just be as simple as like creating like a divider page 
um, between like the new stuff and like everything up until now that hasn't been changed and that that would probably solve many issues that uh, because then at the top of the page, they could say on page this or that, this is when you get into the old stuff again. So just to reinforce Stephanie's point about the survey, um, one thing I will say is that part of uh, the first video discussing the future of 1D&D that Wizards released on their YouTube channel uh, made it very clear that not only do they read and analyze the written comments of survey feedback, but they are looking for things like this formatting advice. Uh, an evidence of them already making the change is the fact that they added a change log to the rules glossary to let you know what's being changed and where. Um, so I think definitely I would advise everybody to add as part of their other comments miscellaneous section just to have a cumulative document. So that way I don't have to look at the character creation one to find my first level feats, but then go to expert classes for my fourth level feats and that whole hassle. So we took a different approach to this play test, and I think we would all agree that it was much more beneficial from a, a learning and testing perspective. So instead of each throwing together a character and then just jumping into a one shot, we got together to build characters and talk it through all together as a group. So we went through the experience together and it could have conversations as we stumbled, stumbled upon different nuances in the language of the, the playtest packet. And that gave us the opportunity to share and discuss insights as they came up. Uh, and then we played a few combats to test out the character's mechanics. So we kind of took out the exploration part of it and we just focused on seeing how this stuff worked in combat. There are a few things that were hard to learn without playing the character through all of the phases of play over multiple sessions. But the majority of your character's mechanical build are tested in combat. So that's where we decided to focus the energy. Uh, so let's start just by sharing what we decided to test. John, you actually got to, because of the way we did this, you got to play. So what did you build and test? I both tested a single class up to level 10 devotion paladin, which was just a human. And then I also play tested a multi-classed uh, paladin with seven levels of devotion paladin and then three levels of the Unearthed Arcana lore bard that we got in expert classes. Uh, Michael, how about you? Uh, play tested a ranged drow paladin for the first play test and then tried to do something way too ambitious um, with a, a rogue ranger and druid setup for the second one. And Ian, what did you play test? I play tested a wildfire druid with the new chassis because I wanted to see how that held up to the other uh, subclasses from like Tasha's and and uh, other sources. So I was interested in all the the hullabaloo surrounding druid being supposedly nerfed. It was the general opinion on the internet, uh, especially looking at the new wild shape. So I played a moon druid for both of the little sessions that we had exclusively in the wild shape form. That was the only thing that I was I was testing out. Um, so for the first time that we we did this, I actually built two characters and kind of like ran them side by side almost. I had a one D and D 
moon druid um, using the background species and, and class and everything from 1D&D. And then I kind of replicated it and then used the 5E subclass like moon druid features instead of the 1D&D. And I just kind of rolled side by side and kind of played them as if they were in parallel universes to get an idea of just DPR and then healing and how they felt, you know, like if I if I was playing the 1D and D one, I'd make these choices. If I was playing the 5E one, I'd make these choices just to to test it out. And then I was curious about as a melee character, because that's essentially when you're in wild shape, that's kind of what you're focused on. I was curious about how the DPR would feel compared to other ones. So when we got the opportunity to hop into another little test combat session, I had my one D&D moon druid, and then I had a 5e fighter um, as the class. I used the one D&D background and species, um, and then I had a one D&D paladin that I exclusively used smite with. Um, kind of, and again, those were like rolling in the background. I was really just playing the the moon druid, but it was interesting. It let me kind of compare and contrast and see how things felt. Yeah, one other note I just want to say for our playtest is for every combat we ran characters that were at level 10 and we also didn't use magic items, although if damage would have been resisted to because of like non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, we just treated it as magical anyway, but in a way like I know since you were keeping like a spreadsheet of what would have hit, what damage would have been done between your moon druid and say a fighter, it really went to show this is what fighter provides if you don't take any magical equipment into the equation. So in the playtest packet, the first thing that is shared is the druid. So let's talk about what changed and then deep dive into our impressions from playing the new druid. So the three biggest changes were to Wild Shape, which got a whole lot of hype, uh, adding channel nature, and then spell list updates. So, John, can you start out by just giving us a rundown on the mechanical changes? So I don't know if I'd call it hype as much as panic, <laughs> but the biggest change was to Wild Shape. First, that it now offers a template stat block rather than getting to choose any beast that your character has seen before from the back of the player's handbook or the monster manual or really any source that has a beast stat block of an appropriate CR. Wild Shape is also gained at first level rather than second and has been built into the main druid progression. And it rather than it being a separate resource, uh, druids now have uh, a resource similar to clerics, how they had channel divinity called channel nature. And there are a few different uh, uses of channel nature as you le uh, level up, including one where you can use it to cast find familiar and one where you can do uh, a healing action for, uh, for a few different allies. There were also some spell list changes. So even though I didn't play test it while we were doing the character creation, you mentioned Stephanie, I created a level 10 druid. And I just noticed that there were some, like, the Blight spell was missing from the 1D&D Druid. So I, I don't know what spells got shifted around, but that was definitely a noticeable exclusion. So I'm wondering if some of those spells they're trying to rework 
uh, because, I mean, you have like Eldritch Blast, which is probably becoming a class feature. And, you know, they reworked Barkskin right off the bat. So I'm wondering if they're really just trying to take a look at these more situational spells and figure out if there's a better fit for them. Uh, I don't know all of the different spells that they uh, excluded from the list, but I do remember when I was building my own druid, looking at the primal spell list and then comparing that to the app, which I have in my phone, that allows me to sort druid spells based on class and subclass. And I noticed there were there were quite a few that uh, just did not appear on both lists, even though they would have been like decent spells to use. So that was kind of disappointing. When I was playing, I didn't really use the the spells, so I didn't I didn't pick up on on those changes. I really focused on the the wild shape, and I I didn't mind the stat blocks. I think they were fair enough. Um, if you were Looking at them as like using a weapon, essentially, which is what I was testing even when I was comparing it to Fighter and Paladin, is just the DPR of, okay, so instead of a, a 1d8, you know, longsword, I have a 1d8 claws instead. Um, and it was, it was all right. Um, I definitely think that uh, what some people are saying online is fair, where you do lose some of the the cool little aspects of like, if you turn into a spider, you can cast web or, you know, little nuances like that. And having your stat block be exactly the same, whether you turn into a river otter or a grizzly bear does seem like a little bit silly, um, but it's a, it's a made up fantasy game. Um, one of the things that came up, I think when we were doing the character creation all together, that was, I thought was kind of an interesting idea was essentially having um, almost like you prepare spells as a caster, being able to prepare a certain number of shapes that you can change into that day. Now that does bring back all of those B stat blocks that are in the monster manual and whatever. So I'm not sure exactly why they were trying to get away from that. But that made it kind of cool as a way to, you know, limit how many shapes you could turn into at any given time, um, while also giving you the flexibility to do web or, or have different attacks based on what you actually choose. Just to clarify what you said about the design intent of moving toward a template rather than using the beast stat blocks, Jeremy Crawford said that while Druid is pretty well liked and the players that play it give it a high satisfaction rating it is the least played of the core 12 players handbook classes due to its complexity and there's confusion around like if you're a new player there's a huge barrier to entry because of wild shape it has just the even the feature without the stat blocks is this huge chunk of text that Treant Monk, who is a well-known and respected optimizer, doesn't even really know how it works. He's admitted that. And so not only having to manage that feature, but also be able to decipher a stat block, which is formatted differently than a character sheet, and then have to go through all these outside resources in order to pick your stat block, it was just an overload. Um, so that was the design intent of moving toward a more streamlined template. Yeah, that makes sense. But I do remember hearing that in the video. Um, so I think this is more of like, like Michael always says, don't take away my toys. 
um, <laughs> from the people that really liked Druid and liked being able to to play with all that complexity. Um, so obviously Animal of the Land was the one that came up the most. I didn't really test animal of the sea at all the only benefit there is the fact that you can swim and you can breathe in the water um so we were not in that setting so it didn't really come up uh the animal of the sky was interesting it does 1d4 damage um plus your your wisdom modifier and then and at 10th level you get to add 1d6 from the elemental strike for the the moon druid um but the main thing with Animal of the Sky that was cool was you have this ability or this feature called flyby, so you don't provoke opportunity attacks when you fly out of an enemy's reach, which means you can like swoop in, like peck them in the eye, and then swoop back out again. And not so I could see combats where you need to just start to like wear an enemy down where that could become really useful. I mean in the grand scheme of things, probably not super helpful. I mean, you don't get Animal of this guy until you're at ninth level. So doing 1d4 damage, even, you know, then you get the, the d6 when you get to 10th level. It's kind of lame amount of damage at that for that level character. But that ability to just like sneak in, sneak out and do these kind of like bomber attacks was was cool. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I I didn't even use Wild Shape myself on my druid, uh, except to get away with the aerial uh, the aerial form ability of flyby there. So I think that uh, the aerial form is really only useful when you start getting singled out as like a dangerous caster on your uh, party, and the enemy tries to like surround you or something like that which is kind of what happened during our playtest. And uh, then you can like on your turn, assuming you survive, you know, being surrounded or something, you can turn into a bird thing and then fly away, not even making like, any attacks or anything because you can't do that on the first turn, just flying away and repositioning to be able to cast, uh, you know, your better spells again. So... Stephanie, you had mentioned some of your findings uh, because, like I had alluded to, uh, you were kind of keeping a spreadsheet. So, you know, you mentioned that you had tested the new moon druid land of the beast against a fighter and paladin of the same level. So I think it would just be interesting. Again, this is not theoretical DPR. This is actual DPR. Uh, what were your findings when comparing the three outputs? Yeah, so in terms of actual DPR, it is it's a small sample size because um, I did. So the first time I compared Animal of the Land to the 5e Moon Druid and the the Brown Bear. So the interesting thing with the, the Animal of the Land versus the Brown Bear. So when the 5e Moon Druid, you essentially get that beast shape's HP as temp HP and your HP stays the same kind of in the background. Also, the 5e Moon Druid has the ability to expend a spell slot to heal. For the 1D&D Moon Druid, that one, you have the ability to cast Abjuration spells while you're in Wild Shape, uh, which, like most of us know, I'm going to pretend I knew before this exercise, uh, that most of the Abjuration spells are healing spells. So I could expend a spell slot to do 
healing word or some other uh, healing spell on myself. You have forgiveness because that is a very recent change. Um, Healing spells used to be evocation, and it wasn't until one of these UA docs, I can't even remember which one, that they changed all the healing spells to be abjuration. Okay, well, we'll pretend that I knew they were in a particular school to begin with. I mean, that makes logical sense, but I never categorized them. (laughs) So, uh, So both my animal of the land and my brown bear were able to bonus action heal themselves to pretty much the same amount each time. It there it was very comparable. Uh, the interesting thing was when uh, when I went down, my moon druid was down. My brown bear just poofed away, and then my human druid was back, and then I had the ability to turn into the next wild shape and get, you know, that temp HP again. So it didn't really, while I was in the wild shape, the healing was very comparable, but then obviously the effects, the effects once you fall out of it uh, was, was very different. For the fighter paladin, I got really nerdy and I made a spreadsheet and printed it out so I could track everything and also not bog down the combat. Uh, So The average DPR, we only had six rounds of combat. So again, small sample size here. But my one D&D Moon Druid did 18.8 DPR per round on average. The 5e Fighter did 16.3 average damage per round. And then the Paladin, which was exclusively focusing on smite and using spells for smite did 25.5 damage per round but again i had no interest in saving those spell slots for anything else i i could tell that this fight wasn't going to use them all up so i could just willy-nilly like wing smites around and even only having one smite per round it still felt ridiculous especially when i was comparing it to these other melee characters it, it like knocked out, knocked it out of the park in terms of being able to feel like I was doing substantial damage, you know, had the paladin be, been the one that was, was doing the damage in the actual combat because that was like parallel universe. So this just reminds me of how Treant Monk, um, he does like a lot of like statistical analysis basically on uh, his channel when it comes to like damage uh, calculations. And uh, you said it was 18.8, 16.3 and 25 or something uh, for the Paladin. Um, so like that is that is a substantial increase, I would say. But I'm also interested in like what the percentages might be because with like Triant Monk, he has like this baseline damage that he calculates that's based on Eldritch Blast and Hex and Agonizing Blast uh, for a Warlock. And he says that that's like the minimum base damage that you can consider to be like okay. Uh, And it's not even like good damage. And I'm just wondering what that would be um compared to what your numbers were in this uh play test so that that gets me thinking a little bit so i know what you're talking about and right it's eldritch blast and hex so it's d10 plus d6 plus modifier and so when you're thinking about a fighter and it's just a regular fighter with a regular longsword you're talking d8 plus modifier if you're taking the dueling uh, fighting style maybe another plus two to damage but I think the reason why I was so big on like having Stephanie share this is 
fighter in the optimization community is like, whoa, fighter, it can have this huge damage output. But it's not because it's a fighter. It's because of the feats that you take. So great weapon master and sharpshooter lead to high damage outputs. But fighter on its own is something I've been very critical of for a while because it's so equipment dependent. So since we're talking speculations earlier and looking forward, the next packet, I believe, is going to be the warrior group with barbarian, monk, and fighter. I think, which are like the three classes that are underpowered right now in baseline fifth edition. Um, Barbarian too? Yeah, because if you you get rid of rage, what else does Barbarian do? To me, the greatest feature in Barbarian is third level bear totem where you get resistance to everything. And then after that, there's no reason to keep it because there's nothing that you get post third level besides extra attack, depending on your build, that's worth taking it never allows you to really get a magical attack so you have to start relying on other sources or equipment in order to do that for you to this point we've been speaking very heavily on the the combat aspects and that's what we tested but the the play test i think the most um the most useful piece of information that i was able to glean out of it is just that the druid feels different in some bad ways despite agreeing with some of their balance decisions. So when I look at, it's it's kind of interesting, um, Bard and Druid have both been, I think Cleric too, maybe, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, um, have been given the ability to heal uh, without needing to, to put it in a spell slot, which is really funny to me because I think the devs are trying to to avoid some of the, the contention that we have at the table, or, you know, you have uh, actually... You know, we talked about a cleric in the, the past not picking healing spells and that uh, that sort of horror story comes up a lot. So the, there's some stuff like that that is um, it's interesting. Uh, when it comes to the, uh, the emphasis on wild shape, though, I, I, I feel it for some reason, it feels like the, the concept of Druid, as it has existed in 5e, is being pulled away from, and in small, very difficult to describe uh, for for me um, ways. So when you look at the the creatures that you were able to shift into, uh, that's like a flying creature, uh, <clears throat> like a bat with echolocation, or uh, a boar that has um, you know the charge of ability, or like relentless. Um, there's a you know constrictor snake, or it can just you know, bind somebody up and, you know, these can be powerful uh, options. The, they've made some decisions that have balanced the druid, but also made it less fun. And it, it kind of feels like it's a whole rogue situation for me over again, where, where they're making smart game design decisions, but it's coming at cost to some of the feeling of the character that you're playing and i think that that lives outside of the combat specific stuff that we've been talking about as well especially when it comes to to wild shape just as an example uh you know you have a badger with a burrow speed really really cool for for exploration uh, or rather just a, you know those sort of like niche rpg uh situations same thing with uh i think echolocation is good being able to turn into a tiny creature in general so, you know, a mouse or whatever kind of running around and doing the, the recon, you can't do that 
uh, until later levels. So it's, I, I feel like a lot of the focus has been on trying to balance out the combat. And there's this trend that I'm starting to feel where it's coming at cost to some of the more, uh, in, in my opinion, some of the, the other pillars of play, namely puzzles and your, I guess, role-playing. So I think that speaks back to what John was saying about how the druid is like an iconic character that gets a lot of, you know, a lot of chatter, but not as many people play it and it's got a high barrier to entry. So the people that like druid really like it and they like the complexity, but Wizards of the Coast kind of has an obligation to some degree to make it more accessible to everyone. Um, so, you know, they're trying to uh, to let people get into it easier. I understand that perspective, having been on that side of game design and trying to broaden the uh, your, uh, I guess, the target audience, or at least lowering the barrier of entry so that more people can kind of latch onto it. But frankly, I think that they've kind of, they've gotten enough ubiquity within the tabletop RPG space to where that should be less of a problem now because people are going to be talking about D&D. D is now, or D&D has evolved past the basement virgin, you know, uh, sort of everybody at the round table gathering up for secret meetings, you know, playing the the nerd game uh, and is, is way more common, uh, you know, within our, our culture. So, or right, way more accepted rather. So when it comes to the, the barrier of, of entry, I, again, I, I've been on the side of game development and I've made what I feel is the mistake of catering too much to the lowest common denominator. And because of that, um, sort of sacrificing some of the, I guess the, the depth for veteran players. Yeah. When you try to please everyone, you end up pleasing no one. So I almost wonder if there's there's some Goldilocks work that needs to be done here. They went a little too generic, although it still works. I honestly think like if we didn't have the the knowledge of the past way of doing it, I think this would be like, oh, this is cool. Like I can turn into an animal, flavor it the way I want, throw in an element, and that's kind of neat. And now I can attack with a bear instead of a sword. Um, but I, I think it does lose the iconicness that you're talking about and I wonder if there's a way to find a, a little bit more of a middle ground. You know the concept for for Druid at least as it relates to you know 3.5 we go back an edition or two the it was very grounded and things have gotten more magical over time so Druid I was just looking it up I have my 3.5 uh, player's handbook here you could uh, get an animal companion at level one and when I imagine Druid there is a very there's like an iconic picture of this elf and she's got like a, a wolf or a dire wolf behind her and and i say oh druid that image is always going to stick in my mind so you they're definitely butting up against some of that for me when they they keep maybe evolving or devolving depending on what side of the conversation you're on the the concept of, of druid they're they're straying or going down a path that that i'm i'm a little hesitant to, to follow and just to speak on the 3.5 druid, the animal companion at level one, that was from, you'd use animal friendship on a creature and then it would, you know, follow you around. And it felt, while it's, it like doesn't necessarily 
uh, impact all facets of gameplay, you you trade that now for something like the uh, nature or the the channel nature find familiar, and it's an attempt I think to bridge the gap, but ends up feeling totally different, at, at least for for me. So, so three point five sounds like Pokemon. <laughs> you're, yeah, you well, pick it's your little. Your I think Pokemon. nowadays it's like Pokemon, actually, because you <laughs> yeah, find familiar. There we go. Yeah, wildfire spirit or whatever. Like you know, it's. But back in the day, you'd have to like, hey, there's there's a squirrel. I'm gonna be friends with the squirrel, and then animal, you know, friendship. You know, cast a spell, and you get the. Um, and you could have companions up to like two hit dice worth of companions, so you can actually technically have more than uh, one creature at, at level one. So if you want a couple of squirrels while you're you can totally do that. Nowadays, you really have to role play it to make it work. So the mechanical side of things has kind of gone by the wayside for the sake of the combat and just making everything apply to everything else. John and I um, spoke in a, a very recent episode talking about optimization. And uh, one of the things that was brought up was the satisfaction rating or lack thereof for the, for the ranger. And its abilities are so specific to like, oh, I'm a ranger, but I'm like very good at the forest and whatever. And what if you're playing in the underdark? It's just like, it's never going to come up. And I feel like some of that specificity, even though it may be, uh, may not relate to every campaign, feels really cool when it does relate to, to things. And by homogenizing so much of this game for the sake of everything being useful at any time, I feel like it diminishes the, the depth of the game, just makes it more shallow in general. So, Michael, I largely agree with you. As someone who has played a lot of druids and tried Moon Druid on an occasion or two uh, in 5e's old framework, to me, when it comes to druid at its most basic and what I would want out of a chassis is nature caster. Spell caster attached to nature. And what I think about subclasses that's where i think things can get more specific like are you a druid that specializes in an animal companion versus a druid that themselves can take most advantage out of shape-shifting my favorite druids i've ever played are inspired by karama from yu yu hakusho which is literally just pretty boy with a thorn whip so <laughs> and some plant spells but i don't want to have to have more than that if that's all i want in terms of forcing the chassis to make me really like wild shape, I hear you on the specificity. And for me, I think that the most elegant D&D design is where you have a, a balance between something that's digestible and complex. And there is a balance where it's most deep because if it's too complex, then it actually ends up cycling back to being too simple. So for example, Pathfinder has a thousand feats but like six of them are the good ones. So even though it's a highly complex system, yeah, you don't really have a lot of different choices if you're thinking about things that would actually come up. But the the design I like most usually has a balance of like two general things, one specific thing. So the problem with Ranger was that everything was situational. So it had nothing that ever came up. But if say, you know, you've got Hunter's Mark as a class feature, so that's something you know you can use all the time. But your natural explorer is only tied to the forest. So you're not going to see it most of the time. But the one time you go into a forest, you can be like, ah, I can talk to small animals because I'm a forest ranger. 
to me, that strikes the balance of not feeling like your character is ineffective, but also not bland. <laughs> so you do get some more kind of specific choices. And even Stephanie and I were talking about that where sometimes, you know, I've, I've had the feeling that sometimes D&D characters get stuck in an archetype where they can only view something through the narrow lens of whatever the archetype presents. And the more specific you get to know an individual, the more human they become. So uh, this is random, but one of the things that really stuck with me listening to the Office Ladies podcast to talk about The Office is the their description of Dwight Schrute and how Dwight is such a universally beloved character because of how specific his characteristics are. The fact that he's a beat farmer that drives a Trans Am that likes Battlestar Galactica and just all, and the fact that he loves and will die for Michael Scott and is also an avid hunter. All of these specific things are what make him universally lovable. So I, I totally hear you on the specifics front. Um, and I, I agree with you that I think they're trying to make too many things universal when they already have a framework in terms of chassis subclass, where you could even make a complicated subclass and a simple subclass. And I'm not sure that Moon is the druid circle to try to make the simple subclass. That being said, I don't think the original Moon druid should not be touched. <laughs> I think it was broke, but I do think there's a middle ground somewhere. I uh, am inclined to agree. I think that wild shape is like it feels like it should be an iconic feature but i think that the druid uh both like you know in terms of like history and in terms of fantasy lore is a little bit more uh, closely associated with the image that michael brought up earlier of the character with the animal companion and i think that what has happened is the way ranger is perceived now versus druid uh, has kind of like muddled the flavors to uh, quote an infamous anime. Uh, it's just, it's made it so that there's a little bit of overlap in terms of the thematics that makes it a little bit more difficult to really come up with a unique chassis uh, for either the ranger or the druid that feels satisfying and true to the narrative that the class is trying to play, uh, which of course is different from the archetype that the class is trying to play. One of the things Jeremy Crawford talked about when developing, I'm pretty sure Tasha's Cauldron, but it could have been earlier, is the fact that D&D's class design is built off of specific archetypes and specific fantasies. And while I think that in D&D's framework, there should be room for specific fantasies, it does bother me when those are the only options. So one of the things I loved about the cleric UA that we got is that not only did we get what we expected out of like classic cleric? And there was the whole like channel divinity that was broken part, but the holy order feature where you got to customize is your cleric more of a warrior type or more of a caster type. That was to me a really smart design decision of these tend to be the three iconic general options and how are you going to customize your character? And I think there was a lost opportunity of not having a druidic order feature that allowed you to customize the druid similarly, where yes, if wild shape is something that you associate with the druid, go ahead, build your wild shaping druid, but that's not the only druid. And I think that the focus on wild shape just needs to be pulled back a little bit. Yeah, I, I also agree on that. I think that the wild shape 
like it was a little bit of an over committing uh kind of change to wild shape and how much of an impact it has on the chassis of the of the druid and uh i i think that you know from playing the wildfire druid um i just don't think that any of my uh class features really came into play except for that one time when i was like okay i'm surrounded i better turn into a bird and fly out of here if wild shape is the iconic thing um it could have been done better but if nature caster is the iconic thing then we were missing some of the so, some of the support that was necessary to make the nature caster vision really come into play so now that you mentioned it this is a good time to bring up that one of the things that you really helped us play test again in a very small sample <laughs> was this idea of the new chassis being backwards compatible with old subclasses that has been a huge concern that is kobold press's entire stated mission statement is one dnd isn't going to be backwards compatible so i'll say that having dm'd a few different players that have brought wildfire druids to the table your wildfire druid using the new chassis did not feel any different it felt it didn't feel like the features were clunky or that there was incompatibility at all it felt like just any old wildfire druid that being said we started at level 10 which means we didn't see the leveling progression of the wildfire spirit being gained at third level instead of second level how would that affect like a multi-session campaign where there's like level ups and stuff but in terms of just like at level 10, how effective it is it from the limited experience I've had so far? And again, we'd have to test it with other chassis, but I'm hard pressed to say that one D&D is not backwards compatible. I think it is. So another thing that I feel like we keyed in on more in this playtest packet, I think, again, because this time we built characters together like we all hopped on zoom and and kind of built characters simultaneously and hung out together um but the spell casting which also showed up in cleric but i'm not sure i remember us talking about it uh your spells that you can prepare are determined by the number of spell slots you have for each level so for example as a fourth level druid you can prepare three different zero level spells meaning cantrips uh four different first level spells and three different second level spells so you are restricted in what you can prepare which is something that is different Boo! <laughs> this came up first in the ranger and bard playtest of expert classes and i read that and i said they're trying to make things too simple Boo! i love having like six first level spells and one second level spell because I like picking spells that work. Yeah, I think it started to feel a little bit more. There's a few things in this playtest packet where I'm like, hmm, that's Pathfinder because I just got finished reading the Pathfinder core rule book. There, there have been a few things that that D&D changed with this where I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I remember that from the Pathfinder book. I don't know if it's like specifically Pathfinder or 3.5 had that as well. Uh, because I mean, it all it's it's all got kind of like the same bones. So it could just be they're trying to, you know, dredge up old features uh, of the game and see what might fit for um, for the future of, of 1D&D and just see if like, you know, people kind of want a return to that kind of play style 
you know, just trying to figure out what's the best way to uh, kind of like make everybody happy without it being completely bad. Yeah, no, that's fair. I don't know 3.5. I mean, we played it years ago, but I don't remember exactly how it worked. I will say the difference is that Pathfinder has the same thing where you have a certain number of spell slots and that's how many spells you can prepare. So if you have four first level spell slots, you prepare four first level spells. If you have three second level, you do three second level and so on. The difference is that in Pathfinder 2E, um, you prepare ahead of time individual castings of spells. So if you want to use Burning Hands two times, you have to use two spell slots. So the term spell slot, I think, especially when you start switching between the games, can start to get a little confusing. But what D&D has always done, which people who come from 3.5 or Pathfinder 1E over, 5E's framework is built on spontaneous casting, which is a very specific type of spell casting uh, from the Pathfinder system, or originally 3.5. You said that Pathfinder 2E was the one that you have to prepare individual castings of a spell. That is correct. And uh. that is the same as Pathfinder 1E. That is something that hasn't changed. And this is also a good time to bring up. So I think I mentioned that I created a druid at level 10, even though I didn't play test them. And as I also said, my favorite druid I've ever played is based off of Karama from Yu Yu Hakusho with that ability set. And the druid I created was basically a port of a level 10 5e druid that I had played in a previous campaign. And even though we only have one subclass, so I can't pick Circle of the Land as I would have in 5e, I'm disappointed to say that it was a big restriction, this like spell slot preparation method where I was picking fourth level spells I didn't really want, but I had to because I'm not allowed to use those fourth level spell slots on anything else. So I will say that from the spell casting department, I was mostly disappointed with the druid. Yeah, no, I'm kind of on the same page, you know, as a guy who really enjoys casters as a whole, like sorcerers and uh I mean, I like wizards well enough. I just, uh, it was just kind of disappointing to not be able to prepare more spells of the kind that I felt like I would need during a given session to be able to spend those spell slots on. Especially, I'm wondering, I think they're doing something special with Warlock, but if Warlock still only has like a handful of spells, I wonder how that would be handled. Like, would you just lose your, uh, your like earlier level spells? Uh, for the higher level spells uh, that you don't want you know I don't think that's how they do it but like I think that if this was the trend then that would be something I'd want to keep an eye out for one thing that I did really like from the formatting of this playtest packet was the little boxes that they have now um, uh, that say like multi-classing and the druid or multi-classing and the paladin where it tells you right right in the class if you're trying to multi-class with it, you know, just how to get started, because that was always complicated, especially with casters. Um, even when I know how to do it, I still kind of second guess some things. So I really liked, I really liked that. And I think that they should bring that same kind of aesthetic to some other things, um, because I actually, I realized with the cleric packet last time I went back to my 
PHB to remember how to calculate spell save DCs and spell casting modifier. I think I have it memorized now from all this playtesting we've been doing. Um, but I realized with this packet, it is in there. They just changed it. So it's just kind of in line with everything. And, and it's so easy to lose. And actually, no, they don't have how to calculate your spell casting ability and your spell casting focus. So I don't know if that's something that they're going to change. Um, but I just, I, I'm kind of feeling like there's, it would be really nice if they had just some quick how to calculate things like in the, in the, the body of it, like they do for some of it in the beginning, but yeah, no, it's just, it's stupid that that's not in there. So before we move on to the next class, I do have to ask, how do they roll with the Druid? John, you can go first. I think a 12. More positive than negative, but still not amazing. All right, Michael? I'm probably in the same boat. There's definitely some accommodations that they need to make now that I've, I've seen it in play. Ian? I'm going to say about a 10. It's okay. Uh, uh, you know, basically in the same realm as John and Michael, but I do think that um, addressing the nature caster thing, which is something they pointed out in their interviews, would be uh, something to look more into. Yeah, I would agree to probably like in 11. I'd like to see more subclasses just to see if there's if it feels a little bit better when you have a few more choices. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in Arc 3 of Advantage, a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app. Alright, so next is the Paladin. So smite has been the hot topic, but there were also changes to smite spells, uh, adding find seed as part of the class and the addition of abjure, the abjure foes feature. So John, can you give us the, the overview rundown of the big mechanical changes on Paladin? So smite has been reduced to once per turn, which was the first big shock. It applies to ranged and unarmed strikes in addition to melee weapon attacks which means it's now more versatile it no longer has a spell slot level cap so it used to be that if you use a first level slot it's 2d8 radiant damage and then uh you know it goes up another d8 for every spell slot level you use up in 5e you couldn't get a benefit by using a spell slot higher than fifth but now there's no cap anymore. You can use as big spell slots as you have access to. Paladin Smites also no longer crit according to the rules as written because rather than being part of the same weapon attack, it's extra damage that's added, added on after the fact. 
and you no longer deal extra damage to fiends or undead. So old 5e paladin, you would deal an extra d8 radiant damage if you were hitting a fiend or undead, and that's, that part has been removed. They reworked fine steed mechanically to now have different effects based on the creature type that you choose for it. It used to be the creature type was more of a flavor thing, but now there is a functional choice to make if you're picking your steed as a fey, fiend, or celestial. And abjure foes is a new channel divinity which is a change in and of itself. They mentioned that they heard our complaints with Cleric about the number of channel divinities being attached to proficiency bonus. And now it's locked with the class level progression. An interesting note is that Paladins used to have less channel divinity uses than Clerics, and now they have the same number. So when we play tested level 10 Paladins, they had four channel divinities to use. And one of those options is Abjure Foes, which is, in my experience, very powerful because even if the target succeeds on their save, they acquire the dazed condition, which is like getting Tasha's mind whipped. Yeah, two other things. So they have more channel divinities, but Divine Sense is now part of channel divinity. So what was two separate calculations now is lumped in to one. So there is a little bit of balance there. Um, And then the other thing that I feel like nobody's talking about, and it feels like a bigger deal to me, is that paladins now have cantrips. They did not have those before. I I haven't seen that anywhere, like on Reddit or or anything. No one's really, everyone's just like, ah, smite. But there's, they have cantrips. I think the reason nobody is excited about it is because everyone was expecting it because Mm -hmm. rangers also gain cantrips in expert classes. And Paladins and Rangers have always been kind of like peers because they're both half casters. So if Rangers are going to get cantrips, everyone kind of assumed Paladins were going to get cantrips. Yeah, I've never played Ranger, so I don't think I picked up on the change. But with Pal- I've played Paladins before multiple times, so I definitely noticed it more this time. Well, they also introduced cantrips as a, uh, a fighting style. And I believe it was Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. So Smite was definitely... The thing that everybody was all up in arms about. Um, Some people liked it. Some people didn't. I thought personally, when I saw you playing it, um, because I didn't, I didn't really play the palette and I just, I just kind of made a character with it. Um, But the, I thought that it was a a very fair trade. Uh, The things that you lost were compensated by things that you gained. So the sixth level smite of protection, where basically any time you use your smite, then you choose an ally that's within 30 feet of you, and they gain temporary hit points 1d8 plus the level of the spell slot used. So in in some effect, you're, you're kind of healing them a little bit. You're at least giving them hit points so they don't go down. I thought that that was, I mean, for the number, how often do you actually crit? I, it doesn't, it doesn't happen all the time. So I feel like that's not a huge loss. And then the, the amount that you can hit, like, yeah, I guess smite twice per round would be nice, but if I can smite and heal an ally and then just do a regular hit after that, that I think it's, I think it's fair enough. So I've been DMing. For a decent chunk of time now, I've played a paladin or two myself, sometimes for myself when I do solo D&D. 
Uh, I've seen my mom play a good number of paladins. Steph, I've seen you play a good number of paladins. Michael mentioned our optimization episode that we did uh, earlier. And one of the things that that he said was that he didn't want to play paladin because it has a locked in play style. And I am hard pressed to disagree. Um, pretty much every paladin that I've seen runs in and divine smites. Um, and one of the concerns that Jeremy Crawford brought up is the idea of paladins having a huge amount of spike damage that the fact that they could divine smite more than once around meant that they could just go over and over again and after sixth level similar to the fighters barbarian problem i was bringing up earlier because they got aura of protection at sixth level there wasn't really a reason to stay with paladin and so you could just keep getting more and more spell slots to fuel your divine smites to do a lot of damage i do think that the way divine smite was written was a little bit it made the play style a little too narrow. And when Jeremy Crawford first announced the idea of class groups with the expert classes UA, I did kind of raise an eyebrow about Paladin, not because of the thematics. I agree that, you know, of all the 12 classes, that's probably where it fits best, but mostly out of play style. So the expert classes, they all got expertise at very low levels. They had this unified mechanic. And I was thinking, you know, Druid and Cleric, I can kind of see, but my previous frame of paladin being run in and divine smite didn't fit the cleric druid <laughs> kind of play style having played the new paladin myself i do think it's much less of a martial character and much more of a pivoting slash support character i mean michael had played a ranged paladin and he spent more time casting spells than he did actually attacking with his weapon and personally, I actually think that's healthy for the game. Um, I think that having just a bunch of different fighters with similar abilities that have slightly different features isn't the best variety. But I do think that it does have a bit too many resources. So both Michael and I, from our experiences doing the solo paladin thing, um, you know, at the end of a fight, it's like, I still have plenty of spell slots and channel divinities to use, and I haven't even, like, touched half my resources. I can say, having also played the Paladin Bard multi-class, that when I started multi-classing, it started to narrow the play style again, where rather than having this versatile pivot character like the level 10 Paladin, I felt like my Bard slots were there to fuel my Divine Smite, and if I got into real bad trouble, that's when I would dissonant whispers, which is actually kind of the design I want to see, where my multi-class character wasn't more powerful than my single-class character, but it just, the play style was very different. So that's kind of what I'd like to see moving forward, isn't one is more powerful than the other, it's just what, what kind of character are you trying to create? And are you going to feel ineffective if you try to pick the storytelling option? So I was mulling over this uh, a little bit because playing Paladin at 10th level, you know, reading through its its abilities and uh, you know, I, I played a, a Paladin that was ranged and I was really hoping to just like focus on hard hitting damage. I had a heavy crossbow and savage attacker and crossbow expert and, you know, fighting style archery. So I was just going to like, like nail it every time and what i ended up doing actually was 
using spirit guardians and then standing around. And when somebody went down, in the rare case that it happened, I think it only actually happened once, lay on hands, bring them back up. And, and that was pretty much it. Just, I was able to kind of just like hang around. And for a lot of that gameplay, because I was able to fight from range, it, you were hard pressed to to put me in a or put me in a disadvantageous position with spirit guardians. So you're just eating it every turn because um, I could kind of like back up and, and create distance. So first, spirit guardians is new to the paladin spell list because now it uses the divine list rather than a curated list. And second, I almost wonder if that kind of like shield it just speaks to the fact that spirit guardians is kind of broken as is. Um, and I think if you take spirit guardians out of the arsenal i wonder how different your experience would have been i should certainly hope that it would be different because I, I did feel like oh, okay that's that the no-brain play you know we had so to speak on our, our actual um experience in the first combat we fought a what young dragon young red dragon dealt with that no problem at all and at the end of the combat was thinking hey we should throw more creatures in just keep the current game state so you throw in like three driders 19 ac uh, right off the bat and in arranged attacks so the most likely thing to hit them was actually spirit guardians just standing around doing damage and so that that particular spell um you could use some tuning and even if it were to to be tuned i still feel as if we had loads of resources and in a game where you typically, well, I, I guess I can't speak for every table, but in many of the games that I have played, you have one combat encounter. Even over the course of four hours, it's just like, you know, lots of role-playing, some puzzle solving, and then one combat encounter, and that's, that's pretty much it, just for the sake of time. And without stretching our, or like without having a constant uh, attrition, I think that we, you'd be hard-pressed to diminish the, the resources enough to create a challenging encounter. But of, of course, you know, these games can play out over mo multiple sessions. You can be dungeon crawling for, you know, a, a long period of time. But it's, it is a concern that I have because I felt very powerful. And even though I wasn't even trying for it. I agree. That I feel is a very common type of way to play the game where it's like one combat per a lot of social interaction and then a long rest. So you're constantly getting resources replenished. In general, it's pretty agreed upon that spellcasting characters tend to be more powerful than weapons using characters. And the paladin shifting from more of a weapons focused smiting character to a heavier spellcasting character, I think really it just makes it more versatile and actually more powerful. But yeah, I mean, your experience, Michael, with playing that paladin that stood around with Spirit Guardians on was my experience in Blood in the Valley playing a cleric. So it there was almost no difference in the play style between a cleric and a paladin because they shared that spell in common. So this might be an issue just with the the new spell lists in general. This I and I've, I've seen this now, I think twice because I had some issues with the druid spell list too to where i felt like I, I felt like things could be more granular and i think that a solution would be to bring back class specific spell lists i think you kind of drive home 
you know, the, the flavor doing that. I really was excited for the idea of having a simplified spell list, but there's so much overlap currently. So I don't know if it's going to ease or comfort you at all, but uh, back during the expert classes uh, series of videos, Jeremy Crawford did mention that one of the reasons they were big on the spell lists was so that God, it's so weird to talk about on this side of the OGL thing. So that if other people wanted to design for the system, (laughs) it would be easy for them to kind of plug in a new class or subclass that just mentions pick from the arcane spell list. But Bard was an example where the class list had some arcane, some uh, primal. It it just drew from a lot of different sources. And he said, you know, for this play test, we said pick like these schools from the arcane spell list. But that's probably not going to be our finalized design. We're probably going to bring back class-specific spell lists as they become appropriate. But when you're thinking about something like the wizard, the wizard can just say pick from the arcane list because that's kind of its shtick is that it uh, it can take a lot of different spells. But yeah, I think Paladin would be another good example of, you know, Paladin needs a specific spell list that has smites and clerics shouldn't have access to the smite spells. What's funny is that I expected the style of gameplay that I was playing with Paladin to be the style of gameplay that I would be playing with Cleric. Right now, I I feel like you've kind of uh, usurped the role of Cleric. But, you know, this very one experience, we're at 10th level, it was one combat encounter. Uh, so it it may be, you know, it, it probably doesn't feel this way if you, if you keep, you know, uh, progressing upwards and uh playing through multiple different circumstances but so far my experience has been i'm I'm raising eyebrows one thing i think uh was brought up um i i again i you know we keep citing triant monk and stuff i'm pretty sure he's the one that said this was that instead of having the smites be on the divine spell list you could have them be kind of like eldritch blast might become for warlocks and have it be a paladin uh class feature um and make it so that like if you want to have a paladin that is more flexible in their smites but also more flexible in their role that you could make it a class feature and uh, at like slightly i i I don't know if it'd be better to have it earlier or mid-game levels but basically just say you know at this level you learn protective smite at this level you learn brandishing smite or banishing smite and all these other things um like maybe when you would learn the spells at uh, the normal spell casting progression anyway, and that could solve some issues in terms of uh, in terms of like sharing smites between the cleric and the paladin. Yeah, it's funny to come back to Druid for a second. One thing I saw to address the concern that Stephanie had raised about the fact that you're losing out on some of the specific animals by having this generalized template was borrowing the design from like warlock invocations or artificer infusions where you have a separate menu of class specific options where you can pick specific things to shape your character's specific i'm using that word a lot expression of a particular iconic feature so for druid the wild shape you start with the templates but Maybe you have some kind of druidic invocations where, you know, now in addition to your normal template, you can turn into a spider and shoot webs, or you can turn into a snake and constrict. 
in a similar way, Ian, I could see it being something like paladin invocations or prayers or whatever they call it, where as part of your divine smite, you can also attempt to frighten your enemies, you know, <laughs> equal to a number of times for proficiency bonus per long rest, because that's the design that we're going to see till the end of time. <laughs> you can attempt to frighten someone when you divine smite them. So I can definitely see that. And again, I like the menu of options design because the chassis can be kind of generic and that's where you get the specificity. And I don't want to lose the specificity, like kind of like what Michael was saying. I just don't want the specificity to be like my only option. Um, so one of the other interesting features is fine steed, which you now get as part of the class at fifth level. Um, so the feat or the feature is faithful steed and you can easily call on the aid of an otherworldly steed. You always have fine steed, the fine steed spell prepared and it doesn't count against the number of, of spells you can prepare. So I don't know that any of us used it. Um, it seems like it's just kind of another version of find familiar. I don't know. Why would I want a steed? I've never summoned a steed, so I don't know why I would want one. What benefit does it offer me? So find steed is, uh, or faithful steed, seems kind of like a callback to 3.5, where it is somewhat iconic to the the concept of, of playing uh, a paladin. And actually in 3.5, you, you had like a war horse, um, and if it died, you would not be able to summon another one uh, until a year later. So it's I think some of that speaks to how grounded the game was before and kind of how we've evolved it to kind of like make things more universal and more magically, I guess. You know, even the just the otherworldly steed bit. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is like responding to the video game. Like, I want it back now. You know, there's not, yeah, the gimme gimme culture. Well, not only that, the emotional toll. So I remember when I first started playing 5th edition, Julia wanted to be a Beastmaster because she wanted to have a pet doggy. And as part of that class's gameplay loop, you'd have to send your dog into battle. And if you're going to do that, it can get hurt. Even if I don't target it, some enemies, it's like, I deal you five fire damage if you get within five feet of me. And she would take it so hard if the dog got hurt. So that's why you can say about the gimme it back culture kind of aspect of it. But also there are a lot of people in this community that are very sensitive. <laughs> so the idea that there could be like even imaginary harm to like an animal or something, I could see wizards wanting to stray away from that as much as possible especially given their other sensitivity decisions so i'm not saying i necessarily agree with it but i can understand it it's multifaceted for sure i guess everything is is kind of meant to be more session relevant where way back you're no like you're just going to be playing for who knows how long this campaign is going to be very deep you know we're, we're gonna you're you're character is a, a hero who's going to build themselves up and triumph over insurmountable odds and you have decisions to make when you do that but the game has evolved as it's kind of become more 
you know, uh, widespread, uh, it's become less hardcore. And I, I think that's kind of the impetus for a lot of the decisions nowadays, this among them. So it's an attempt to kind of harken back to some of the, the uh, fantasy of playing a paladin. Uh, though they, they were able to, you know, prep fine steep before, but but now building it into the kit is um, is pretty fun. Uh, so early on. To go back to Stephanie's original question, why would I want a steed? I can't explain it here because uh, I've never done it myself and I don't understand it myself. And having listened to some of the optimizers in the community, it's like, what? This is a broken spell that like gives your character all this speed. There's there are huge mechanical advantages to fine steed that I can't summarize, but they exist. Yeah, because it's not just like you get a horse and you can ride on it. Like it's it's an ally and it shares your initiative count. It functions as a controlled mount um, and it has actions it can take. So it can do otherworldly maul and then based on uh, whether it's a fae, fiend, or celestial, it has bonus actions like fae step, uh, which lets it teleport up to 60 feet away from you, and fell glare frightens, or at least attempts to frighten creatures within 60 feet of you. And then the celestial one has a bonus action of healing touch, and it heals you up to 2d8 and the spell's level. So, I mean, it's and it could touch any other creature, so it doesn't have to be you. Um, so it's it's not just a little horsey that you can ride around on. Like it can do, you know, it can be a substantial ally in battle. So it would be interesting to try. I honestly didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it because I was just like, eh, I don't need a mount, you know. But looking at the actual find seed spell, it's a little bit more substantial than that, and it might be worth checking out. Well, and here's the other thing is, you know, we keep bringing up Triant Monk, but it's because he's got a lot of insight into just understanding the mechanics of the game so you can do with them what you will. But he said that the rules are vague if you have to be the one mounted. So you could summon this mount and then give it to another character. And basically it takes its turn after yours and you can command it, but you can be teleporting other characters' places and stuff. I I really want to commend them on the the uh fae fiend and celestial bit i think actually the rework for other for fine familiar otherworldly familiar is pretty dope i really like the idea of if the thing gets dropped down to zero health it just disappears into an extra dimensional space once uh that's super cool and then the the flavor behind the uh celestial fiend or fae uh gives you more options so if you want to be you know a paladin who's riding an elk I mean, you could do that anyway, but now it could be like, you know, it's a, it's a fae. All right. So looking at Paladin, John, how'd they roll? Oh, I actually had one more thing on Paladin before that, which was Abjur Foes is broken. The fact that if the enemy succeeds on their save, they still get dazed and have no action economy and you get four of them at 10th level that needs to be looked at. Why wasn't it frightened when they save instead of dazed? That's what I'm thinking. Like, is frightened that much worse than dazed? I don't think it is. Yes. Yes, is it, it is. Is yes, it really? Because frightened, you can't target the thing that that's frightening you. 
So it takes away the choice, whereas days, you can target it. You just have to pick, are you going to move or action? Well, days isn't that. I mean, they can still either move or take an action. With frightened, what? No, well, I, I was shaking my head because it is that bad. Because I had my big giant demon person in the playtest. And basically, my paladin is like, abjure foes. And he's like, okay, now I can move. <laughs> and that, like the boss was basically like, you can't have your turn. And it didn't matter what he rolled because it's just on a success. You're dazed. So too bad, bud. So yeah, to be able to remove the boss without like, even if they succeed the save, like that's pretty significant. Yeah, at least I had to use Stonewall to, to or Wall of Stone rather uh, to, to, to cordon him off. Oh, so they're dazed and frightened on a fail and just dazed. Yeah, so they're they're trying to, um, you know, dazed means they can at least take an action. They can either move or take an action, so at least they can do something. I, I could see where it seemed like something that was worth testing out, but yeah, it seems a little, maybe at 17th level or something, but even then, yeah. it's it's ridiculously overpowered. One of the reasons why it is overpowered, day's condition aside, is because we play, on average, one fight that you can just dump all your spells in every game. And then there's like a, at the very least, a short rest. But usually, you know, job is done, go home, or you fight some like light mobs up front, and then you don't need to, to waste your big spells. And then when you get to the boss, you can just take a dump all over them. I disagree with that because with the abjure thing i'm pretty sure you can get that back on short rests so even if you're doing a longer dungeon crawl thing it's got a such a short recharge that even outside of the single fight environment like you can use it a lot channel divinity twice you regain one expended use when you finish a short rest and you regain all when you finish a long rest still that's a mechanic that is super cool by the way i that hasn't been done elsewhere, has it? No, it hasn't been done elsewhere. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's a cool mechanic. Okay, so Paladin, how did they roll? John? All right. As much as I've been complaining a little bit, I'm going to give them like a 16. I really like it for the most part. I think it's more minor tweaks to make sure it's not overpowered. Michael? Same thing. Uh, 16 was the number that I was going to choose as well. <laughs> please tweak some of this nonsense aside from that it's great ian uh because i consider a 20 to be like perfectly on the mark uh and a 10 to be like eh uh i'm gonna say like about 14 so a little bit under just because i do think it's it's overtuned to a certain extent that would require even just a little bit more uh review there yeah i agree with the the 16, even just from the perspective, I felt like every time I looked at it, I figured out something else that was cool about it. You know, it just kind of kept unfolding. And and there were definitely some things that on the surface, it was like, wow, they're nerfing Smite. But then it was like, oh, wait a minute. Like there's, there is more you can do. So I think there was a lot of, there's a lot of potential that's easy to miss on the surface unless you actually read the stuff, which we know not everyone on the internet does that. So yeah, it was really fun to watch the D&D &D YouTube people do this live 
because they'd be like, oh, unarmed and ranged fights, but once per turn, but no damage cap. And they just would go up and down like that as they were reading through it. All right. So the the rules glossary, uh, there were definitely some changes. Uh, the change log made it really easy to go through and, and see what the differences were. I think the most significant thing was that they added the dying condition. So they, they took something that it was kind of a thing that was just floating out there with death saves and everything. And they made it a little bit more specific by making it a condition. Um, but just in general, what, what are y'all's overall impressions of this playtest material packet? Uh, overall, this seemed like a pretty, I mean, meaty, I guess is the word, playtest. It was interesting for me in particular because these two classes are not ones that I gravitate toward. And I think that if Paladin got some further refinement, it is one that I would be very interested in playing. Druid, I didn't mention this before, but I feel like it's very difficult for me to multi-class. Uh, into the druid and also feel effective. I'm sure. Well, I I intentionally did some things that um, that I maybe shouldn't have done. But until more content comes out for druid in particular, it's kind of going to be a dead class to me because what I'm seeing here, while more balanced, isn't something that I'm super interested in compared to the druids that currently exist in Five E. I think as playtest material, especially with the context of the number of like design intent explanation videos that D&D releases, I think for the most part, I'm encouraged by what I see because I have a pretty good feeling that this isn't going to be the final form. So looking at other Unearthed Arcana, so like some of the subclasses before Tasha's came out, or when we got the Moon Sorcerer before uh, Dragonlance. Looking at that, there were certain things I was looking at, and I'm like, I don't agree with any of this, and I'm pretty sure that no matter what I say, we're going to get some form of this. I, I think that they've shown already with 1D&D how much they're willing to change, that I like the idea of them presenting something super different, but kind of like uh, one thing that was revealed in those videos that's not evident in this doc is Ardling is no longer going to be considered uh, for the the new core books. Not that Ardling won't have their time to shine, but in terms of the storytelling context, this isn't the best place for them. Neener, neener. But yeah, for the most part, I like a lot of the new ideas that they're trying out here. I agree. Uh, I think that just the sheer amount of like changes that one D&D tends to make with each playtest packet is uh, always a welcome sight just because like it's cool to see like what would it be like if we did it this way and it's like then you find out oh well this way is better or oh uh, I guess that's why we don't do it that way. I just want cumulative test packets. <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs> it's, it's getting exciting. There's a lot of cool stuff and, and it's really starting to unfold. And I just want to be able to process it all a little better. And I can't imagine when we get more information, now there's going to be five packets of information to flip through and it, it's a little much, but I'm enjoying this whole process. So I would really love just a, a thorough up-to-date everything test packet each time. 
Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium RPGs. For more content by us, check out our YouTube channel with the link in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Okay, this is not for the podcast, but I also didn't look at otherworldly familiar, like the find familiar stuff. And the action is otherworldly scratch. Rawr. <laughs> I don't like... know why they just didn't call it scratch. <laughs> it's a scratch <laughs> from another world. Oh, yeah. like, well, it does it's... a different damage type, so it makes sense that there should be some difference. But that's So not... it's not the otherworldly part that I have a problem with. It's the scratch part. I'm gonna get we you. conjure the powers of the world beyond to scratch you <laughs> with 1d4 damage. I think the core of Dungeons & Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully. Dungeon Master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts.